I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Flora Gladwin. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. As a nonprofit focused on educating and empowering people to get involved in climate action, we are reliant on the financial support of our listeners. So if you're a regular listener and you value what you get from us, consider a donation that aligns with that value. All you have to do is head over to our website at climateoptimist.co and click the donate button. Even $5 a month goes a huge way in helping us to deliver on our mission. And, and while you're there on our website, take a moment to sign up for the monthly newsletter. It offers facts on climate solutions, perspectives on climate news, and tips on how to get involved. Yeah, I promise it's a good read. And uh, next edition due out the end of this month. So it's admittedly, especially for us folk who've worked in the renewable energy sector and aware of it, it's, it's always really been hard to get a new wind or solar farm from sort of the permitting stage to building it, to getting it, you know, connected to the grid. That challenge though, you know, and getting new projects up and going has become a real concern though, as the U.S., you know, works to decarbonize the grid and avoid the worst effects of climate change. And, you know, with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act last year, that challenge has only gotten bigger. So today we're going to be looking into the bottlenecks that are standing in the way of a cleaner grid and, and what can be done to address them. But before we go there, let's talk about this week's reason for hope. So the U.S. is in negotiations with Turkmenistan to help plug their methanes. You may be wondering why Turkmenistan. Well, Turkmenistan is the worst country in the world when it comes to methane super leaks. In 2022, leaks from two of their main oil and gas fields emitted more in equivalent carbon than the entire UK. So John Kerry, U.S. Special Envoy for Climate, has been spearheading an effort to help. The goal is to get these leaks addressed by this year's Global Climate Conference in November. And the reality is it's, it's an easy fix in many cases. So excited to hear that news. Thomas, Flora, any thoughts from your end? Not directly on that, Jason, but I do have another reason for hope while we're on reasons for hope. And that is that the Tesla Model Y just became the biggest selling car in the world as of Q1 this year. So the next four vehicles on the list below that are unfortunately um, Toyota vehicles with internal combustion engines, but it's great that we've finally hit number one with a full battery electric vehicle. So that tells me that it won't be long before the next vehicles on that top five ranking are also battery electric. So I'm pretty stoked for Tesla. I was not aware of that. And that is indeed a reason to celebrate. Uh, I know Mr. Musk can be a controversial figure, but <laughs> Tesla has done an amazing thing for the EV market. So before we hop into today's topic, we thought since we're talking about renewable energy and things like grids and transmission lines, that it might be helpful to cover some basic vocab. So, you know, all of us are aware that the grid is made up of, you know, different energy sources, things like solar, wind, natural gas, coal. But the other kind of, you know, distinction you often hear about when talking about energy sources on the grid is, is dispatchable versus non-dispatchable. And while that might sound sophisticated, it's really as simple as you know, energy that you have control over, right? You can turn that on and off switch versus, you know, non-dispatchable, which are things be like wind and solar where you can't control that piece of it. When we're talking about the grid, 
it's also worth pointing out that at least in the US, it's divided into a series of regional networks called system operators. And those operators are, are in charge of you know managing the grid within that territory and are also charged with evaluating you know all interconnections, which is you know the term for when we're hooking up new plants to the grid. And finally, you know, when we're talking about new energy plants, their capacity is usually measured in units like, you know, megawatts and gigawatts. And there's all sorts of caveats to this because it depends on the type of energy and how often it operates. But, you know, in general, a megawatt of capacity or a megawatt of solar can power anywhere from 150 to, to 200 US homes, probably double that in Europe, given that European households are much more efficient and, and smaller. So anyway, hopefully that terminology helps a little bit as we dive into this conversation about renewable energy bottlenecks. Definitely. So I can get into our guest for today. Jason can't intro him because he is in fact also a Jason. Our <laughs> guest today here to help unravel the challenges facing clean energy is Jason Berwin. Jason is the Vice President of Policy and Strategy at GridStore, a developer, owner, and operator of battery energy storage systems. He was previously Vice President of Energy Storage at the American Clean Power Association, or ACP, as well as Interim CEO and Vice President of Policy at the U.S. Energy Storage Association, ESA. He's been cited as an expert on energy storage in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, USA Today, NPR, The New Yorker, and numerous other trade publications. Jason holds master's degrees from the University of California, Berkeley's Energy and Resource Group, and Goldman School of Public Policy, as well as a bachelor's degree from Columbia University. And it's clear, based on this introduction, which of the two Jasons knows more about energy. I was <laughs> 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 oh, super excited to have him on the show again. Jason. Welcome to Climate Optimist. Hey, hey. Thanks for having me, Jason. So let's start you off with a basic question. When it comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? Sure thing, man. I mean, enacting the uh, Inflation Reduction Act in the summer of 2022 changed the hope calculus, right? Not just the economic <laughs> calculus. It really was this watershed moment for me personally, as well as I'm sure for so many other people who've been working on this for such a long time, be because in many respects, you know, the questions right now are no longer if, should we do this? It's really like, okay, how much can we do this? How fast can we do this? And those are just so much more motivating and exciting questions than continuing to fight about should we do this, which has been, right. you know, for the longest time, I think the conversation, certainly in clean energy, which is where I spend my time. And it's not only the, the, the change amongst myself and my professional colleagues on that count, but it's also watching the people in our lives really absorb this as well. Like these are no longer fringe technologies or ideas like people in my life want to know and are thinking about like heat pumps um you know i'm watching <laughs> more and more people uh migrate into clean energy sectors because it's no longer like a niche thing to do it's like a major mainstream industry like every person i see particularly with like an oil and gas background jumping into the industry that just makes me so optimistic about our ability to make meaningful progress, at least in 
the energy sector to address climate change. Yeah, I suppose that's sort of the the ultimate telltale sign. You're seeing more and more oil and gas folks jump ship um, and come over to renewables. So as someone who works in energy storage, uh, what might people on the outside not realize that that might be interesting for them in terms of wrapping their head around what energy storage actually looks like? Yeah, well, so I think there's a couple of things. And you said what energy storage looks like. I mean, the first thing to note is that Energy storage kind of looks boring. <laughs> like it's a bunch of boxes right now, really. Like batteries, which is really lithium-ion batteries, which is what most everyone is installing on the power grid today. Maybe what's a more interesting thing for folks to be aware of that they might not be thinking about is that battery energy storage is just in a completely different place today than it was even you know, three years ago, right? The the change in how much we are deploying on our power systems, how quickly that has changed is really stunning. Prior to 2020, across the entire United States in any given year, we never installed more than a few hundred megawatts of batteries onto the power system, right? Okay. And in 2020, that was the first year that we installed across the United States a gigawatt in one year. And that's like, you know, that's a meaningful milestone, right? Because at that same time, you're looking at, you know, wind and solar doing, oh, I don't know, like maybe 10 gigawatts a year in each of those uh, technologies. We were definitely like the little kids coming to the, the birthday party and like the siblings being like, oh, all right, we'll let the moon. Um, in 2021, the US added three gigawatts of batteries. In 2022, we added another four gigawatts of batteries. In 2023, this year, we're expecting to see nine to 10 gigawatts of batteries installed on the power grid. Um, Here's an amazing stat. We're expecting to see more storage capacity than wind capacity come online in 2023. It's just amazing to think how recently we were like this smaller bit player in the sort of wind solar storage triad. Yeah, I mean, that's that would be an impressive transition even within a decade. But the fact that that's, you know, less than five years to go from, you know, about 10% of the capacity to more, you know, storage going on the grid than wind is, yeah, that's massive. Well, since we're talking about like forecasts here for for storage, wondering if you could kind of paint a picture of what we're forecast to see sort of more broadly when it comes to renewable energy in the the coming years and kind of how does that compare to what we've seen in the past? Sure. Yeah. So, and you know, listen, there are lots of projections out there now uh, that were produced after the enactment of the Inflation Reduction Act. So you can take your pick. There's going to be, you know, variation here, but I'll just focus on, for example, what Princeton University's Zero Lab has produced. Following the uh, enactment of the Inflation Reduction Act, the Princeton Net Zero Lab is projecting now that through the decade, we're going to see, say, wind and solar installations annually uh, increase to about somewhere between three and five times the pace of recent years. Wow. So that's maybe going from 10 to 15 gigawatts per year up to 40 to 50 gigawatts per year by the end of the decade. And, you know, I'm lumping solar and wind together here, but I really, you know, I think many folks would agree that solar is 
probably the giant of this decade in terms of how much of that capacity is solar versus wind. And just this year alone, in the uh, Energy Information Agency at the Department of Energy says that about 30 gigawatts of solar is planned to come online this year. So that's, I mean, again, that's dwarfing everything else, right? Wind is slower growing, but certainly folks are, you know, over the longer term, keeping their eye on offshore wind, which could be quite huge in terms of the chunks of capacity it can deliver. And, you know, these are projections based around the economics, right, of what's possible. We can maybe talk about <laughs> where reality is going to intervene on exactly how much we can put on the grid and how fast. Right. But um, it's also important to recognize that uh, these kinds of investments might also not fully be capturing just like what else is going to be happening that changes those numbers too, right? You know, there's a lot of ink being spilled about green hydrogen today because of the Inflation Reduction Act, and that could itself be a huge driver of more, even more additional renewables deployment. So exciting to see such massive growth. I, you know, I'm thinking for context for those who don't necessarily know what a gigawatt is. I mean, there are some states that you could power with 30, 40 gigawatts worth of capacity. Obviously, you have to make assumptions about um, you know, how frequently those assets are running and so forth. But 30, 40 gigawatts is a big number. Oh, yeah. I mean, the United States as a whole, gosh, I'm going to be ballparking this, but I think the United States as a whole has about just over a terawatt of capacity across every kind of, you know, generation type. It's a thousand gigawatts then. Correct. And like, you know, I, I don't think anyone needs to be convinced that a gigawatt of solar is not the same as a gigawatt of gas. Um, but it's just, again, it gives you kind of like an order of magnitude understanding for what it means to add, say, 50 gigawatts per year of renewables to power grids across the U.S. So you mentioned the economics and that now the constraints are going to be other constraints or non-economic constraints. But just for folks who may not be super plugged in, from a cost perspective today, how do you know wind and solar compared to you know natural gas obviously natural gas being the fossil fuel of choice sure i mean electricity from wind and solar is cheaper than electricity from natural gas fired power plants when that wind and solar plant is running like that's a non-controversial statement again though these you know they have different output and utilization profiles because you know the wind and solar are variable and generally non-dispatchable whereas the gas obviously you have control over more or less when it's going to run. So I think there's two ways to, to look at this question here. The first is just how much fuel does running, say, wind and solar plants save you in your power system? And it will save a lot. Like there's a reason why we're adding lots and lots of wind and solar, not just because obviously the economics and particularly the incentives of the Inflation Reduction Act, but also because, uh, you know, there's real benefit in not burning as much fuel in your system, right? Even if your capacity is sticking around. Um, the other way to look at this, and I think probably what you meant more is like what's needed for say renewables and storage together, or maybe just storage by itself to replace gas power plants on the grid, right? And, yeah. and you know, I, I think there's a couple of things to bear in mind here. Like the first is that, remember that value 
is what matters, not just cost, right? So it's not controversial to say that energy storage is going to upfront from a capital cost standpoint cost more than say a gas peaker plant. On the other hand, the utilization value of that battery is higher than that gas peaker plant probably in lots of situations. That means you're going to, for example, get more throughput and say sell more energy and maybe ancillary services to the grid from that battery than an equivalent capacity gas peaker plant, right? We're seeing that competition play out in real time through whether it's utility resource planning or power markets. And not everywhere, not in all cases, but yeah, these things are very much in the crossover point in terms of that value cost ratio. Well, and and I guess for those who may not be aware, I mean, you know, we talk about gas peaker plants. Those are the plants that a utility is putting in to deal with times when, let's say, you have a really hot series of days and you've got a lot of ACs running or you've got, you know, it's cold winter time and you're trying to, you know, run a lot of heaters. And what you're saying is that these utilities that are having to make these long-term plans are, many of them are sitting there and saying, well, actually having this battery capacity sitting there, we can use it for more things and therefore generates more value over time than, than going out and building a, you know, a new peaker plant, if you will. Yeah, exactly. So let's get into, you know, talking about that there's favorable economics for renewable energy and storage. What are we looking at in terms of, of bottlenecks, knowing that there's this huge, you know, growth forecast to take place in the coming decade? Sure. And I've written about this at some length because I think it's now on everyone's mind in clean energy, specifically in, you know, renewables and storage, which is can we get on the grid? Can we get an interconnection? Interconnection, interconnection, interconnection. That is bottleneck number one, two, and three for a lot of folks, right? We have not, across the country, built transmission infrastructure at the pace that is needed to support large-scale renewables and now storage growth. So interconnection is like a very serious bottleneck. I think the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory has a great data series they put out an update on interconnection queues and it's just showing the time that folks are sitting in these long lines to interconnect to the grid are lengthening that the costs associated with infrastructure upgrades to reliably interconnect these resources are increasing it's a serious i mean in my opinion pace of interconnection is the gating mechanism for how fast we can make the energy transition in the United States. Supply chain bottlenecks are, I think, still a concern, although that has been softening lately. You know, we're still looking a couple of years out in many cases before you can get your hands on a large set of batteries, but you know, it's not where it was, say, even six months ago, where there was a real sense of like, wow, no one's going to be able to get new supply for a long time. But also I think that where the supply chain bottlenecks are happening is changing. Maybe folks are a little less scared about their ability to get, uh, say, batteries or solar panels, but maybe we're getting a little more scared about how long we're going to have to wait to get a power transformer. Um, labor bottlenecks, I think it's worth considering that as these clean energy industries expand, one of the limiting factors is going to be the amount of skilled people to work in those sectors. And I think we're seeing that most quickly 
on sort of the electrician side associated with like buildings and things like heat pumps. Talk to anyone around you right now who's trying to get a contractor. <laughs> like wait times are really long, right? Right. Um, now scale that out to large scale projects, not only the sort of like buildings and building trades, even if maybe that's not today a massive constraint, it's certainly going to show up, I think, in localized ways in various places where there's a lot of demand for labor and maybe not enough supply. And then permitting bottlenecks, you know, partly that's just a matter of volume. There are more and more people trying to build stuff, which means just like with interconnection queues, maybe state and local governments are dealing with more and more permitting requests. But also, you know, I think it's it's significant to note that the large-scale effort to build a clean energy society and transition means putting lots of stuff, oftentimes in places where stuff has not previously been built. And so I don't want to denigrate it as nimbyism because this is not necessarily nimbyism across the board. I do think that there's a lot of unfamiliarity though in a lot of places that have not traditionally seen things like clean energy resources cited near them. And we can talk about sort of the ins and outs of that. So you, you listed out a number of, of constraints. Uh, when it comes to the interconnection side, is it fundamentally most of the time an issue with we have a place that is really well suited to solar or really well suited to wind, and we don't have enough transmission capacity to move that energy from where we produce it to where it's needed? Or is some of that just backlog within the regulators that are processing these interconnection agreements? It's both and it's related, right? So like, there is just like a fundamental, we have not built enough transmission on the pace needed to match the renewables and storage build. And all of the like reforms and solutions that we're trying to work out are kind of going to inherently run into that problem, right? The, the phrase that I'm hearing folks repeat today, which rings very true in many respects, is no transition without transmission. <laughs> and we need to solve that problem. And, you know, federal policy has been moving in that direction, but it can only really do so much. A lot of this is regional transmission organizations, these sort of sections across the United States that plan transmission across large regions. Again, part of this is this permitting challenge in terms of having not just the transmission owners, the utilities trying to build the things, but also the states and the counties and the localities and the landowners that you have to bring on board to get these things built. So there are solutions to that bottleneck, right? Like more proactive planning where instead of planning transmission for the next few years of known things, you look out 15, 20 years, much like a lot of these sort of regulated utilities are doing in terms of planning their generation, paying more widely for these, uh, for transmission infrastructure. It's a little arcane, but the way transmission infrastructure is paid for is through these sort of very esoteric formulas and frankly, kind of negotiations about who should pay between the transmission owner, the generators who need that transmission access and customers who are going to ultimately get served. Imagine trying to someone coming to your door and saying like, okay, you know, the interstate down the road from you, like you owe this much 
amount of interstate based on this complicated formula for what we think you benefit from. It might just be easier to like, in the way that we pay for roads, just say, hey, most people are going to pay for the roads. You might have some users pay more because they run max semi trucks across them. But for all intents and purposes, these things are largely publicly beneficial. Right. And yet, if you do those things, proactive planning and paying more widely and solving permitting, we're still many, 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 many years away from getting enough transmission, right? So interconnection is still going to be a problem, even if today we solved all three of those things through policy. You know, I don't want to spin too much on the problems, but we're going to start seeing the effects of those backlogs now working their way into policy where, you know, in large parts of the country, we have open access to the transmission system so that people can build generation assets and connect them uh, without any sort of discrimination between their request and other people's requests to put other resources on the power grid. Well, now we're starting to see grid operators changing their thinking here because they can't take all comers. It's just too much. And so California has sort of been the first to start musing out loud, how can they start to discriminate against different interconnection requests for what's going to be sort of most aligned in this case with California state policy. So you already kind of, you know, started to answer my next question, which was, what are we looking at in terms of solutions? I guess if you were to sort of have the ability to kind of pull on the strings you think would make the biggest difference, like what what are the top three things that would be, you know, most helpful in kind of the near and long term? Well, in the near term, we really do need to solve this interconnection dilemma. We need to either figure out a way to ration scarce interconnections, which is challenging, or we need to find a way to very quickly ramp up the capability to process all of those interconnection requests and make necessary network upgrades to accommodate all the clean energy that's trying to interconnect to the transmission system. That just feels like hand-waving because that's not, like, it's nice to say that what's the actual solution is really, really tough to figure out, right? And so, absent that that awesome sort of blue sky magic bullet, we definitely need to do everything we can to resource the these institutions that are charged with managing these processes. We need to build more transmission, but there are not easy solutions because if you try to shift one thing, you may have to rethink how the rest of the system works. I guess my last question, maybe focus more on kind of those of us who are wanting to see a clean power grid. What can we do as as individuals um, to help realize this vision of you know carbon free grid by by twenty thirty five? Sure, you know I think, and this. This again, I, I want to be humble about this because, you know, recognizing that the history of industrial development is not a pretty one by and large. I do think that as we look at clean energy transition, we as individuals have a potentially really powerful role to play in doing what we can in our communities to be advocates for building stuff effectively. I, I you know, you. There's the YIMBY movement, right? Yes, in my backyard. The folks who see value to having, whether it's more housing or more clean energy, built in their communities, in their backyards, 
you know, I think that's important to recognize that that is a really transformative act. Part of the reason I think there's a moral case for that is because, you know, how do we do our part, especially when, for many of us, we have never had any energy infrastructure sited near us because energy infrastructure, particularly polluting, you know, gas or coal has oftentimes been sited in communities that lack political power, you know, generally just poorer or oftentimes people of color. And that's, it, it's worth considering whether there's some benefit to us more widely in the United States across communities saying, let's do our part and have our piece of this. And that might be things like getting okay with denser housing, right? This isn't simply about clean energy per se, too. I almost argue that like <laughs> some of the structural issues like transportation and housing are going to be really big drivers of how much energy we need for that clean energy transition. And, you know, that kind of political act can be very, very transformative compared to, say, just like buying a specific device. Although, if you're going to buy a specific device, like really honestly, buy a heat pump instead of an air conditioner, please, right? <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully we've done our part to educate people on the value of, of heat pumps. But yeah, you, you raise a good point, which is we, I think as communities are really going to need to step back and embrace all the things that are necessary for us to become not only free of, you know, fossil fuels, but, you know, develop things in a sustainable way, you know, can't continue with sort of the model that we, we did where it was, you know, we're going to always need more and more energy and, you know, more and more resources because, you know, it turns out those things are finite. Yeah. And, you know, listen, it's easy for me to say from an armchair, right? It's, I think it's easy for anyone to take this in the abstract. And that's why it's sort of this question of what can I do? It does require real trade-offs, right? No one wants to lose a beautiful view that is unencumbered by any trace of humans, right? No one wants to have something that they think is going to increase traffic on the streets they normally drive on. I think it just does call upon us all to consider the changes that we are willing to be a part of if clean energy transition is something that we think needs to happen. Because as long as clean energy transition is something that happens over there and not in my backyard, yeah, of course I'll support it. Right. So as you're talking about, about all this and clearly taking a you know more holistic view, I guess as you look kind of the transformation ahead that we have in front of us, I mean, what's exciting you as you know somebody who works in the clean energy space, as somebody who you know, sees the value and doing what we're, you know, setting out to do. I mean, one thing that I think about is just like how much better every day life can sometimes be. Like I got heat pumps a year ago. I bought like a little induction cooktop, just like a single burner cooktop. I got an EV, my first EV earlier this year. Congratulations. As I'm using these things, they are significantly better experiences than the things they replaced. <laughs> and I'm really, really excited about the things that we haven't even begun to take into account that are going to change because, for example, batteries are going into everything, right? Like this, this is going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun, I hope. Yeah. Well, hey, I, I like that. And I think it's good to have there be kind of co-benefits, right? I think people who are concerned about climate change inherently understand that we need to make a transformation. But I think 
it's sort of icing on the cake to you know realize that some of these technologies are are much better than the ones that they're they're replacing. Well, Jason, thanks for coming to talk with us again uh, about you know an important topic, and I think one that's that's become top of mind for many people as we as we look at how are we going to you know get to that carbon free grid. Um, and thanks for all the work you're doing in the energy storage space. Hey, Jason. Thank you, man. The future is highly charged. So, Flora Thomas, thoughts on the, uh, the interview with Jason? Ooh, I feel like I was thinking a lot about the real scale of this issue while I was listening to the interview. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, our current mix of electricity is 40% gas and then 20% renewable, 20% coal, and 20% nuclear. So we clearly you know, have this huge uphill battle in terms of getting renewable energy both on the grid and actually distributed. I was also reading about how in 2021, President Biden signed an executive order that set a goal of going 100% carbon-free, so relying only on stuff like nuclear and renewable energy, by the year of 2030. So in 2023, with that being less than a decade away, um, yeah, I felt like listening to this interview, I was, I was feeling some of the pressure of the short amount of time that we have to accelerate some of those projects. I think you share both Thomas and my angst as well <laughs> about <laughs> transformation that needs to take place. I mean, it's, it's both exciting, but also, uh, you know, stressful to think about. The one, you know, as we're talking about, you know, these delays one that I think about, you know, really standing out is is the delays in terms of transmission and mm. what it takes to get a transmission line built. So, I don't know, Thomas, you have thoughts? Yeah, look, on on that side of it, I, I think a lot of that comes down to uh, the fact that we're putting transmission grids through areas that are quite pristine and people often don't want them because of that reason. And so anything we can do to reduce the footprint of that be it through reducing the visual impact by putting it underground or through the fact that we don't need to build as many resources out there because we've utilized other means of generating. And so, i.e., we've used all the available rooftop area first and foremost within the distribution network in inside the cities, basically. And yeah, I mean, I, to the extent, and you can probably explain this in a little more detail, I know it can get technical quickly, but like that there are technologies that allow us to put some transmission underground if, if it's, you know, the right environmental conditions and, and that that might then alleviate at least some of the need in these sensitive areas to, to put overhead transmission, which I think is what most people think of when they think of transmission lines. Yeah. I, if, if we did more high voltage direct current backbones, then the big issue is that it's difficult to get the heat away from it. Right, so if you've got a, a transmission line floating through the air, you know, from one tower to the next, then you've got air blowing across it and taking any heat losses that occur to transmit that electricity. And with an underground situation, you've got to be able to strip that heat away from the the soil. So if you go direct current, it means you've got half the amount of heat to pull away versus alternating current. Now I won't get into the details on exactly why, but places where they do put underground power lines in, they tend to, at least long distance transmission lines, tend to go towards DC. And DC lines aren't that common yet in the US or Australia. There are a few, but in in places like China, it's far more common to have high voltage DC connections. 
Yeah, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't seem like a silver bullet, but it seems like it could be a real win in those places where you've you don't have a better rock that you're trying to drill through, right? But that you're able to put that transmission yeah. line underground. And, and often in the US, you already have those right-of-ways, right? You, you've got a massive rail network across the country. And so it would enable you to utilize the existing right-of-ways that would then simplify the permitting. But the big reason nobody wants to do it is it's expensive, right? It's more expensive than just stringing a transmission line through the air, but it has a lot of additional benefits above and beyond just the visual aspects. It it reduces your risk of having transmission damaged during ice storms or forest fires. You know, the other thing is we're talking about grid and transmission that didn't set in until the discussion with Jason was just the magnitude of the the backlog. So mm. I did you know a little bit of reading afterwards and the US's largest system operator, uh, PJM, actually serves a service territory that that starts at the eastern seaboard with like New York and New Jersey and runs all the way to parts of Illinois. At, at this stage, 95% of the national interconnection queue is sitting at at PJM. So you've got now there are apparently some reforms that were agreed to in 2022 that are going to help with that. But, you know, it does illustrate how big it is, right? I mean, you've got 2,500 projects in the US that are sitting here because of interconnection. Um, The other thing too, is that a lot of these projects are generation only and not generation and storage. And we need to be having a good hard look at ensuring that the storage is put at the point of generation where we're trying to tie in a wind project, which you know may have a capacity factor of 30 or 40%, but we need to ensure that it's providing dispatchable power. And the only way to really do that is to put batteries at these facilities. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And the other thing that even though it's not maybe top of mind at the moment, when we're talking about these interconnection and permitting delays, there is the underlying obstacle too, which is, you know, all of us, right? Mm-hmm. The maybe well-intended, but, you know, problematic issue of folks sort of standing in the way of like, I, I don't want this project to occur near me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jason gets into NIMBY during the interview a lot, you know, not in my backyard. I mean, obviously we see it in all these different contexts, you know, from marginalized groups who are protesting construction on their land to privileged groups that are actually using the slogan to push projects onto poorer neighborhoods, which are often those of color. There's a great example, and I was actually thinking about this earlier, Thomas, when you were talking about the possibility for underground transmission lines that's going on in Maine. So there's a court case that's calling into question a renewable energy project's right to continue building after basically the state voters of Maine vetoed the build on a number of grounds, including nimbyism, worries about the ecosystem, um, but the project itself is the New England Clean Energy Connect, which would be a 145-mile-long transmission line um, connecting hydroelectric power from Canada to Maine and Massachusetts. According to an article in the Boston Globe, the project would provide electricity to power a million homes using renewable energy. But things like nimbyism are, I mean, getting in the way and other things that are obviously important. So I do think there's an interesting opportunity for a solution in what you've spoken to about this, you know, underground building. Yeah, especially where you have a, a point-to-point um, scenario like that, high-voltage direct current works perfectly. Sounds like you guys have this solved. You know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I, I guess, you know, all this leads to, as usual, to, you know, our discussion of like, what can we do as individuals? The first option we want to give folks this week is to get in touch with your representative, um, send them an email and tell them to pass permitting reform at the federal level. It can literally be three lines. You know, I'm concerned about climate change. We need to accelerate our transition to clean energy and, you know, do all you can to make permitting and interconnection of renewables easier. We'll have uh, talking points on our website as well as a link to look up your representative's contact info. Thomas, any thoughts from your end? Yeah, look, I mean, the other part of it is how can we build less transmission lines? And the answer to that is use more rooftop solar. So, you know, we've, we've just got to make sure that all the factories, offices, houses are covered and where required, which is going to be in most situations, we also need to be thinking about adding storage at the same time. So if you haven't got solar on your house, now's the time to do it. It's not really getting much cheaper now. It's sort of levelized. And so if you wait another 10 years, don't expect it to be half the price again. Um, so get into that now. And if you don't have roof space, you can always guilt somebody else into it. So you know, if your employer has a great big roof on their office or factory and there's not a solar panel on it, now's the time to make that change. Great recommendation, Thomas. And, and also one that underscores the value of energy efficiency too, right? You know, Absolutely. Well, that's, that's all we have for this week's episode. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Come back on June 20th when we will be releasing our next episode. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimus.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast. <laughs>